Wisdom personified says in Proverbs 8, does not wisdom call out and understanding lift up her voice? On top of the heights beside the way where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gates at the opening of the city, at the entrance of the door. She cries out to you, O men, I call, and my voice is to the sons of men. O naive ones, understand prudence and fools, understand wisdom. Listen, for I'll speak noble things, and the opening of my lips will reveal right things. For my, my mouth will utter truth, and wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the utterances of my mouth are in righteousness. There's nothing crooked or perverted in them. They're all straightforward to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. She says, take my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choicest gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all desirable things cannot compare with her. She says, I wisdom dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in the evil way. Perverted mouth, I hate. Counsel is mine, she says, and sound wisdom. I am understanding. Power is mine. By me, kings reign and rulers decree justice. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who judge rightly. I love those who love me, and those who diligently seek me will find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even pure gold, and my yield better than choice of silver. I walk in the way of righteousness in the midst of the paths of justice. To endow those who love me, she says, with wealth, that I may fill their treasuries. Lady Wisdom concludes her diatribe. After talking about God's use of his skill, his wisdom in creation, that would include the wisdom of God the Son as the creator. This is not God the Son speaking. This is the wisdom personified of God the Son and his creation. Lady Wisdom goes on to say, Now therefore, O sons, Listen to me, for blessed are they who keep my ways. Heed instruction and be wise. Do not neglect it. Happy is the man who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting at my doorpost, for she says, he who finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but he who sins against me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. I don't know why wisdom has to be so terse and and harsh with the two options. The light's either turned on or it's turned off. Why does everything have to be so black and white with Lady Wisdom? Well, because that's the nature of the case. Righteousness has no shade of unrighteousness in it. We've assembled for fellowship with God and His Word on the lived out righteousness which the Holy Spirit desires to bring forth in us, the fruit of the Spirit which we enjoy when we're having fellowship with God by means of the filling of the Holy Spirit, forfeited through personal sin, regained by God's grace every time we bring our sins and short accounts to God. Let's take a moment for silent prayer so that we can engage with the Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for eternal life, for spiritual life that we enjoy now, because your Holy Spirit has made us new in Christ. We have the Spirit which is from God, our new, newly minted human spirit, made new in Christ so that we can be your people. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who's taken up residence in us to fill us with your word 
so that we're characterized by it. Thank you for those words of David. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. For the treasure of your precious word, scoffed at, mocked by the world and the wisdom of the world. Indeed, your wisdom being the foolishness of God, which shames the wisdom of the wise. Thank you that we can lay hold of your word tonight. We can enjoy the blessing of the fear of the Lord by your grace and your spirit's power, certainly not our own, not our own weakness, but your strength. We can think your thoughts after you. You can transform us as we open your word, Father, we open our hearts to that work by your spirit. Do your work, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We turn the page from Isaiah 33, or 32 to chapter 33. I have two things I'd like to accomplish with you tonight. I'd like to survey the landscape of Isaiah 33 and not go in very much detail at all. And then I'd like to talk to you, frankly, about how we handle in the Spirit's power the challenges that God presents before us. But first, let's go through and walk through Isaiah chapter 33. We find ourselves in this Lord of history phase, reminding us that it's not what is in the headlines. It's the things that you can't see, and the headlines are the effect. The cause is God, who is always at work in history, because it's his story, and the effect are the things you see in the headlines. A rampant, rapacious Assyria uh, taking over all the cities in the southern kingdom of Judah, except for Jerusalem, laying siege to J- Jerusalem with Sennacherib in this great invasion. That is the headlines. Behind the scenes, the part that you can't see, you have God who is the reason for the Assyrian invasion. God is not an Assyrian. He's not friends with the Assyrians. He doesn't like them. He doesn't hang out with them on the weekends. God is interested in correcting Judah for idolatry, bringing them back to himself under the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant. And they won't. So as God stipulated, as he said he would do, he's bringing military invasion from these wicked pagan Assyrians to bring Israel back to himself. And in this part of the story of the six woes of Isaiah 28 through 33, we're in the last of the six woes, Woe to the drunkards in Ephraim and Judah and the fools in Judah. Woe to Ariel for lack of relationship due to lack of knowledge. Woe to the devisers of plans without the Lord, zeroing in on the problem is that you're trying to solve the problem of national invasion through human solutions. We're going to go with an alliance with the, um, the other pagans, with the Egyptians. The fourth woe, woe to the rebellious children who execute a plan not mine, says the Lord, Judah plus Egypt. And then woe to those who go down to Egypt. So the summary is that you're looking to the history, uh, to, the, to the headlines of history and saying, we are going to have to look at the things that we can see and touch and use them to solve the problem that we can see and touch the Assyrians. But the problem is God. The pro- their problem is God, your problem, my problem really is to do with the Lord. And if it's that he's not opposed to you, but he's training you, then your problem is not that God is your problem, but it's that you have to trust in him to get through it. And that's how you grow. But now we're in the phase where the woe begins just a little bit of of woe on the destroyer. There's a lot more to this oracle than just going after the Assyrians, but woe to them. They're not going to be held. um, They're they're going to be held accountable. They won't won't be not guilty through this. God will bring his judgment on them as well. Everybody remember what woe means? That's a big word. It's a little word, but it's it's a mature word. 
we don't talk about woe. We don't say woe. We say W-H-O-A or W-O-A-H. Woe, like horse stop. We don't say woe like this hurts me so badly and deeply. But that's the language. It's woe meaning uh, there's going to be suffering. Now, why should you learn that? Why should you learn W-O-E? Well, because you want to know what God's word says. And then you can connect what he says here in Isaiah about Judah and Jerusalem and the Assyrians. You can understand what God's saying through the, prophetically through the Apostle John in Revelation when you have the three woes uh, in the fifth trumpet. And it's the same kind of thing. That's these oracles of judgment from God. And here's the thing. If you get a letter in your mailbox from God that says, woe to you, that's bad. You don't want that letter. And that's what he's saying through these woes. So God is bringing his disciplinary wrath on Judah and his scourging wrath of judgment on the Assyrians. Everybody is going to stand or fall before God on God's terms, and you might as well figure it out. What are his terms? Turns out it's righteousness. That's what he wants from us, as we'll see tonight. Isaiah 33, in verse 1, we begin with this woe. This is just the New American Standard we're going to read through. Woe to you, O destroyer, while you were not destroyed. Listen to that language. You destroyed, but weren't destroyed. You bit, but you weren't bitten. That's kind of the idea. He who is treacherous, while others did not deal treacherously with him. This is, there is what goes around is going to come around. The bad guy that got away with the bags of money didn't get away. That's the idea. This is so satisfying. The destroyer, well, who's going to destroy him? The Lord's like, I got this. I'll destroy him. That's the language. As soon as you finish destroying, you'll be destroyed. As soon as you cease to deal treacherously, others will deal treacherously with you. Notice that even in this English, just just this English translation, without looking in detail, you can see destroying and treachery, destroying and treachery. There's there's a, a neat rhyme scheme happening here, which we'll look at some more detail next time. But now... Not the destroyer, but those that are looking for relief. O Lord, is the appeal from Isaiah, representing the people, be gracious to us. We, and this apparently would be the remnant who haven't entered into idolatry, we've waited for you. Be their strength every morning. Our salvation also in a time of distress. There's a quibble here about their versus our. Some manuscripts say our. Our strength every morning. He may be, this is Isaiah appealing for the, the whole nation. And our salvation, also in time of distress, the remnant, the people that are walking with the Lord, that are not subject to God's wrath. Now, this is an interesting thing. Within the judgment God brings, remember the Elijah saying, I'm the last one, just kill me, Lord. And the Lord says, you're not the last one. I mean, I will take you, but you're not the last one. We're going to pass the stole on to Elisha. But you just have to know there are hundreds of prophets who haven't bent the knee to Baal yet, or hundreds of believers, hundreds of my people. And, um, and we get this idea, there's always a remnant of God's people. And so uh, this is something you see in Habakkuk. Habakkuk's like, Lord, bring the pain. And the Lord's like, oh, I'm bringing him to kill everybody. I mean, except for the remnant. And, um, and I'm going to bring Nebuchadnezzar, what he says. And, and Habakkuk says, I didn't mean that. I'd rather you lasered out the individual wicked ones. Don't bring such a blunt, brute force instrument like, the, like Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian chariots. Just... Just, you know, send a satellite with a, with a powerful laser beam and just zap the individual wicked people. That would be just take out half or whatever. Just take out the, the half that are bad 
or whatever. And, and, I, and the Lord's like, no, I've got a plan, but don't worry, the righteous man will live uh, literally in his faithfulness. And so there is the desire for God to save the, the remnant, and it is God's desire. I want you to notice that Isaiah is praying in accord with God's revealed will. Be our strength, our salvation in time of distress. And then we're going to exalt God for his might. Because asking God for deliverance from the Assyrians or from the wicked people of Judah who are oppressing the, the afflicted and the righteous, the wicked oppressing the righteous, asking God for God's deliverance is also asking for God's offensive wrath against the enemies That's at the same time. God save me might mean God take the attacker away. To save someone who's being attacked, you have to do something to the, to the attacker, uh, it turns out. And so that's, it's both sides. At the sound of the tumult, that's the battle tumult that God is bringing. Peoples flee at the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Now, the reason I want to slow down here in, in some of these is listen to the simple reminder of the omnipotence of God uh, among, uh, amid the nations and their, their militaries. You can't see God. You can see mighty uh, formations of horses and, and uh, you know, a, a swarm of troops aligned on a battlefield plain that look like an ant mound that just got kicked over, just teeming masses of soldiers. You can see that. You can hear it, but you can't see God and hear him. But here it's, God is pictured as someone that you can't see, the tumult that he brings. Um, everybody wants to flee and run away. At the lifting up of yourself, nations disperse. Your spoil is gathered as a caterpillar gathers, as locusts rushing about men rush about on it. On the spoil, so you can't get away from it. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. You can be afraid of the Assyrians. You can be afraid of whatever the situation is, but that would be the mistake. Think about what God has told you of himself. Look at his creation. You see his mighty power from his creation, Paul tells us in Romans 1. And so from looking around at what God has done, you know enough to think of the source and just dwell on his might, on his glory. And this will help you even when you see the arrayed army against you. We're in Isaiah 33. We're almost at 36. And Rob Shock is going to say, you people are all going to die if you don't surrender because we're the mighty Assyrians. We're here. You got to keep the, the historical circumstance in mind. In other words, uh, you've got Assyrians in your life. You have, you have things that are coming at you that you think cannot be assailed, it can't be defeated. I, as a pastor, pastoring uh, God's people here, see things that I say, God, you're going to have to do a miracle. I expect him to do the miracles that he wants to do, and I ask him for it. And, and I mean in terms of the hearts of people, and to change the hearts of people to do his work, to do his will. And so when we find ourselves facing impossible impossible uh, odds like the Assyrian army against little Judah. We have to remember that nothing's impossible with God. He's exalted. He dwells on high. He's filled Zion with righteousness, our justice and righteousness. He'll be the stability of your times, a wealth of salvation, wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. These words are apples of gold and, and uh, saucers of silver. This is exactly what we need. He will be the stability of your times. He will be a wealth of salvation. He will be wisdom and knowledge. So what do you need to bring to be part of that party? What garment should you wear to the table at this banquet hall? The fear of the Lord. That's the right approach to the God who's the stability of every time. The fear of the Lord is his treasure. 
That's what he treasures, so let's make sure that we have that. And we've talked a great deal about the fear of the Lord in this study. It's the baseline concept and wisdom. Without the fear of the Lord, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter the other outcomes because that's the right approach to the omnipotent, awesome, glorious, uh, omniscient, loving, righteous, holy God that we must deal with. The fear of the Lord is the recognition inside out that he is who he says he is and the contrast between him and his glory and his magnificence and us and our weakness and our lack and our unrighteousness. The contrast is so it couldn't be any sharper if we really think about it. And that is the beginning. You're starting to grasp what we mean by the fear of the Lord. Behold, uh, God, their brave men cry in the streets. Why? Because those who are opposed to him are going to be mown down. God is, is at war with the arrogant, but he, makes, he gives grace to the humble. Their brave men cry in the streets. The ambassadors of peace weep bitterly. And, um, and we think there's a historical moment here that he's talking about. That he's, ta- he's talking about the people, the ambassadors of peace. Who are those people? It may well be the messengers who were trying to appease the Egyptians with a tribute and go through the, the Negev to get to, the, to, to Egypt to go try to take money to them to, to buy them off. Um, it could be those in the streets saying that there's going to be peace when God is bringing war against them. But they're the ones on the wrong side of things because God is at odds with Judah in, um, in the historical setting. So those on the wrong side are going to weep bitterly. The highways are desolate. The traveler has ceased. That means there's nobody out on the road. Sounds a lot like um, the king is coming, you know, the, the language of that song. He's broken the covenant. He has despised the cities. He has no regard for man. And the he there, it seems, in context, would be the Lord because of the, um, because of the, the judgment context. The language here is difficult for us because it says he has broken the covenant. And I don't think there's any time in which the Lord has done that. It's definitely not referring to the traveler. And so it must mean the arrogant, the brave men and the ambassadors. But I think he has despised the cities and he has no regard for man is about God and his response to those who have broken the covenant. It's a poem and we'll get to it in more detail next time. The land mourns and pines away. Lebanon is shamed and withers. Sharon is like a desert plain and Bashan and Carmel lose their foliage. These are all locations that are either neighbors to Israel or Judah or they're part of Israel and Judah. The Sharon, Bashan, Carmel, these are all areas in the northern kingdom. But then God is going to glorify himself. I will arise, says the Lord, now I'll be exalted. In what context will God arise and be exalted? It's in his wrath. It's in him bringing his wrath. It glorifies God to bring his judgment. And you have to remember that. We never want to get opposed to God bringing judgment. The world opposes that. Oh, well, if God's going to be like that, I don't want anything to do with him. Well, that's just exactly the unrighteousness that brings his wrath, the arrogance of our self-righteousness. I will be exalted. I will be lifted up. You've conceived chaff. You'll give birth to stubble. It's always interesting uh, language. My breath will consume you like fire. This is the exaltation of God. It glorifies God to bring righteous wrath on the unrighteousness of the wicked. The peoples will be burned to lime like cut thorns which are burned in the fire. You who are far away, hear what I've done. You who are near, acknowledge my might. What does that sound like to you? This almost sounds like Rahab saying, we know what your God has done to the Egyptians. 
The wrath of God is actually a testimony to the presence of God and to his righteousness. And so when others hear of the mighty acts of God's wrath, which ends up being one side of deliverance, see on the other side of that wrath is that he pulled He's going to pull the Assyrians off. He's going to humble the arrogant in Judah. And that will give relief to those that are afflicted, that are being oppressed. Remember, in deliverance, generally, there's got to be wrath that brings about the deliverance. There's some sort of violence that accomplishes peace. And I know that seems to be counterintuitive, but we're still living 80 years later, 80 odd years later in the peace brought about by an overwhelming violence of D-Day. I mean, these go together. These are um, wrath and violence. When God brings wrath, and often with violence, it is affecting his deliverance. That's the last, um, the last tableau, the last picture of the prophetic future that we have in the Bible is God's wrath on wickedness through the person of Christ bringing judgment in Revelation 19 on the enemies of Israel. This is a very big theme in the Bible. And we need to, to worship God in all aspects of his character, including the wrath he brings that secures deliverance. I love the statement in Romans chapter 16, verse 20 on this theme. The God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. These don't sound like things that go together, crushing of somebody and peace, but that's how peace will be brought about. And then the question, are sinners in Zion are terrified, trembling has seized the godless. See, he's cleansing the, the people in Judah and also the Assyrians. It's everybody's an equal um, target. God is in a respecter of persons in that sense. Who among us can live with the consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning? Who can deal with this righteous, wrathful God? People that aren't receiving his wrath. People that don't have any wrath coming to them because they're righteous. The answer to the who question in verse 14 is answered in verse 15. He who walks righteously and speaks with sincerity. He who rejects unjust gain. He who shakes his hands so they hold no bribe. What does it mean to shake hands so that it holds no bribe? Nothing here. I don't have anything to show. I'm shaking my hands even if I have robes. There's nothing up my sleeves. I didn't take any money. No, uh, no um, coins that I could have in my sleeves. Nothing. I got no bribe. That's what he's saying. It's an image. He who stops his ears from hearing, what, hearing about bloodshed, he who shuts his eyes from looking upon evil. Look, think about that. The righteous man is looking for righteous consumption. Evil's coming. I don't, I don't look at that. Hearing about wickedness and bloodshed, I'm going to stop my ears. That's, I'm going to avoid taking in that content. So he's righteous in what he consumes and he's righteous in his dealings. He rejects unjust gain. Now, why the focus on unjust gain? Well, he walks righteously. That's how he lives as a summary. He speaks with sincerity. That's what's coming out of his face, out of his mouth. And he's rejecting unjust gain and not taking a bribe. Well, this is how you rule. This is stuff that you're worried about with your rulers. Are we worried about the guy at the gas station taking a bribe? I mean, that doesn't affect me. But when someone takes a bribe for his rulership decision that then affects the way my life is going to turn out so that he chose in favor of the person with the most money that gave him some of that money so that then he makes that decision and then I am infringed upon and violence is done to me, my person, my family, my property. Well, that's, that's the problem of government. And so notice 
We're looking for governance to be righteous in this. And so who can stand? Who among us can live with continual burning? I think this is to deal with the God whose rage and wrath is a consuming fire. And the way to walk before God, as one marked out to rule, is to be righteous in everything you see, say, and do. Now, we want to ask the gospel question about this and say, is he preaching that you have to be a good person to be good enough to be with God? And the answer is yes, you do. You and I need to be as righteous as God is. As he told Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. God wants you to be as righteous, perfect, and holy as he is. And that causes us some great angst. Blessed are the poor in spirit. They'll be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, they'll be comforted. The poor in spirit will see, I believe, the kingdom. Um, So how do these things fit together? If we're talking about we need to be perfectly righteous in our conduct, inside out, and, um, and, and that's how you can deal with God, then we're in a lot of trouble being sinful whose righteous deeds are sinful or dirty rags in God's sight, Isaiah wrote. So how do you square that? It's the gospel. It's the imputation, the declaration of God's righteousness to you, not your own righteousness yourself. You didn't work up to a good enough goodness to be good enough for God. This is a verse that puts us in great despair. And we don't then look at the righteous portrayal of leadership here and say, well, nobody is, so, I mean, we got to have Jesus, so we'll just, we'll just say Jesus. No, you, you seek after righteousness. You want to be this way. And the way you can is, as a believer today in this age, you can have the Holy Spirit in you because you've trusted in Christ as your Savior. You've been given eternal life. You've been given the imputation of God's righteousness, the impartation of God's eternal life. You've been uh, indwelt permanently by the Holy Spirit. You and I indeed can work out our salvation, that declaration of righteousness to our account. We can work it out with fear and trembling. We can do this. We can walk before God as he desires us to in the power of his spirit. And uh, that's exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ did in his earthly ministry. Walking by the spirit, Jesus proofed the lane for us. He lived a perfect and sinless life in full obedience to God the Father and the power of God the Spirit. In fact, the works that he did were the power of the Spirit because when they accused him of casting out demons and the power of Satan, he said that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus walked by the Spirit and lived perfect, righteous, sinless obedience to his Father. And that is the spiritual life that we've been given. I didn't say you lose your sin nature. I said you in the spirit can walk in a way that pleases God. The fruit of the spirit is such that there's no law against it. And Paul says in Galatians 5.16, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not be able in any possible way, I'm paraphrasing what the Greek says, it will be impossible for you to carry out the lust or the desires of the flesh. You cannot satisfy your sinful nature's urge to sin as you walk by the Spirit. You can't. If you're sinful, you're definitely not filled with the Spirit. If you're walking by the Spirit, you're definitely not committing personal sins. You can't. That's Galatians 5.16. And so what I'm saying is we need Jesus. Verse 15 describes him. Verse 15 describes him. And the only way fallen sinful humans will and can ever have any relationship of rapport with perfect, righteous, holy God with his burning, consuming wrath against wickedness is that we have Jesus. 
He will dwell on the heights. His refuge will be the impregnable rock. His bread will be given to him. His water will be sure. These are promises coming to those in righteousness who walk with God. Your eyes will see the king in his beauty. They'll behold a far distant land. Your heart will mediate, or medita- sorry, meditate on terror. Where is he who counts? Where is he who weighs? Where is he who counts the towers? You will no longer see a fierce people, a people of unintelligible speech with no, which no one comprehends, of a stammering tongue which no one understands. Apparently the, the um, Gentiles coming to, to knock their, their gates down. Look upon Zion, the city of your appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem in an undisturbed disturbed habitation, a tent will, which will not be folded. Its stakes will never be pulled up, nor any of its cores be torn apart. Now, verse 20 says that there is a future, eternal, glorious Zion. That's Jerusalem in Israel. Zion parallel to Jerusalem in verse 20, which is going to dwell in peace and security. Um, apparently, when righteousness reigns and righteous people walk with the righteous God, but there, the majestic one, the Lord will be for us, a place of rivers, wide canals on which no boat or the oars will go, and on which no mighty ship will pass, for the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. I believe that the, um, the veiled idea of walking righteously before God is the only way to avoid the consuming fire of God's wrath points directly to what's going to happen in the kingdom that Jesus comes to rule as a man, but who is also God. And Yahweh will be our judge on Zion in Jerusalem. The same thing we've heard all through Isaiah. It's another messianic prophecy. Yahweh's our lawgiver. Yahweh's our king. He will save us. And then that's the future and the glorious future. But now your tackle hangs slack. Now it cannot hold the base of its mast firmly, meaning imagery of a boat where you have a mast. It's got to be firmly in place because the, if everything works correctly with the little sail, um, then a tight mast means that the sail will have something to hang on to so the wind can press against it and function. But if the mast is all, all uh, wishy-washy, it's not firm if it's, if it's, um, if it's sagging, if its tackle is slack, then uh, you can't spread out the sail. You can't have it function properly. Then the prey of an abundant spoil will be divided, and the lame will take the plunder. And no resident will say, I'm sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. So that's the then. The now is that you are not in trim. You're not working properly. And the then, and it's an image, poetic image to describe that. And then the then will be that even the, the, the weak will be uh, able to say, I'm no longer weak. I'm not sick. We'll be forgiven our iniquity. So, the, so I think verse 23, 24 is a pair that talk about how you are now anticipating this coming invasion and what's coming then. How many different ways has Isaiah said something you don't want to happen uh, through the passages we've read over the last several months that you don't want these things to happen and then he says the things you do want to happen. And in every case, the things you don't want to happen are God bringing his wrath and judgment on people that are stiff-necked and won't submit to him. They won't make a good decision. Uh, uh, pastors sometimes look at, uh, look at sheep and say, can that sheep make a good decision? Is it possible, Lord, in, at all, to see a good choice be made here? And sometimes we have to say the Lord can, uh, can work miracles. But, um, but the many ways Isaiah has described undesirable outcomes make us uh, all say, well, why, why won't you get with the program? Just do the right thing. All right.
I had two things that I wanted to accomplish tonight, and now I want to talk to you about Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians 4, if you turn there, please, um, I consider this to be one of the most important passages to get under your belt to understand how to deal with God. In the context, Paul is summarizing. He's summarizing how to uh, proceed as a believer. It's great summary advice. and It isn't necessarily that the Philippians are under any stress or any duress, but I think that when we are stressed, when we are in trouble, that this passage is very helpful for us. It's a series of summary commands, uh, like, um, okay, in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. And then he has to do this correction for these ladies that are out of uh, sync with, uh, with God and the mission of the gospel. I urge Yodia and urge Suntuke to live in harmony in the Lord. So whatever problem there is between these seasoned saints, uh, St. Tessa's in the church in Philippi, Paul has to personally uh, correct them in front of us, in front of everybody forevermore here in Holy Scripture. How would you like for your little Donnybrook in the church? She said that my egg salad had too many apples or whatever, uh, too many apple slices in the tuna fish or whatever the, whatever the criticism was. She always brings that green crockery. I'm so, so sick of seeing that green crockery at the church picnic. And someone heard it and then passed it on to Yodia and Sintuke is like, well, I didn't really mean anything. And, and Sintuke is like, well, I knew you always thought that way. And some, I'm saying that's petty. It has to be petty compared to the fact that Paul is including it in Scripture. And Paul is writing a letter uh, that the Holy Spirit is inspiring every word on an occasion that's happened in that church. And these ladies in glory at the presence of our Savior, uh, they must be laughing right along with you that this made it into the Bible. But whatever it is, they do not think the same way in the Lord, and the Lord wants them to. How can we ever have that? How can two walk together unless they be agreed? How can you get these two ladies together in the Lord? They get back to what matters, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the, the way we sign Jesus in the little songs for the children, we point to our hands. Why do we point to our hands to say Jesus? Because he was nailed to the cross. He's the one that bore the nails for us. He died for our sins. And I know Odia is worried about something less than that. And so is Sintuke. But they need to stop it. That kind of idea, right? Indeed, true companion, and some think that's the guy's name. Suzygus is the Greek. And, uh, and that'd be a boy named Suzygus. Uh, indeed, true companion, I ask you, or one other tra translation, fellow yokeman, because that's a, a man together with the yoke, soon and, and the word for a yoke. So we're oxen pulling together. You're my buddy in the work. Um, today's um, military slang, well, the army, we call this guy your battle buddy. Um, we'll say, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who've shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of the, my fellow workers whose names are, are in the book of life. So not only are Eudodia and Sutuke believers and their names are written in the book of life, they're written in the book of Philippians, and I think that's hilarious. But anyway, verse 4 starts a series of summary commands that are very terse and very helpful, and 4.6 is no different with its summary command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, and we all said, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. When? Always. Rejoice in whom? In the Lord. When? Always. What are we supposed to do? Rejoice. When are we supposed to do it? All the time. 
But why? And what would you rejoice? It's not in your suffering. It's not in your pleasure. It's not in your accomplishments. It's not in your failure to meet your accomplishments. It's not in the good things or the bad things. It's in the Lord, which puts a context and an eternal significance to all the other things. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is near. The summary command, it should be, you know, if I was going to do red letters, it'd be commands in the New Testament. Let your gentleness be known. How can you do that? Well, it's how you treat each other. That's how you treat outsiders, how you treat insiders. It's how you treat people. Let your gentleness be known. We need this sort of command, and we need this regularly. And Paul is talking to maturing believers that get it. This is a thank you note for his uh, ministry support that he received. These people get it, and they get it uh, better than most. And then you have 4.6, be anxious for nothing but in everything. By prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And then you have the big summary, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brethren, dwell on these things. That's the command, but what, what, what things? Finally, brethren, dwell on these things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any arete, or that's excellence, if anything moral excellence, if anything worthy of praise, the command that goes with these other commands of rejoicing and letting your gentleness be known and not worrying about anything, the command is to dwell on these things. The things you've learned, received and heard and seen in me, the command is to practice. That wouldn't be the one in bold red. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now I want you to notice, if you look in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 4, he gives you a command and a promise. A command and a promise. A lot of verses that have commands have promises with them. It's a pattern, you see. God is saying there's a path to walk on, so walk on the path because you'll like it. Take a step down this path. That's the command because where it leads you is where you want to go. That's the promise. So verse 9, the things you've learned and believed and heard and even seen in me, practice these things. That's the command. Do it. And it's not a suggestion and it's not a statement of inevitability that if you're a real Christian, you really will. He's saying, do it, believers. That's the grammar of it. It's the volition of the speaker expressed in the imperative mood. He says, practice these things. Now, what's the promise? Do the things that you're supposed to do, and the God of peace will be with you. That's a statement of fellowship. It echoes John 14, 21 and 23. Those who keep my commandments, the one who, who loves me keeps my commandments. The one who keeps my commandments, I'll make my abode with him. My Father and I will make our abode with him. God's promise of fellowship is those who walk with him in obedience. And disobedience, what's another word for that? S-I-N, personal sin. It stops your walk with the Lord, and you got to deal with that. But that's the idea here, is those who practice the things that you've seen me practice, uh, the Lord, the God of peace will be with you. I believe it's a promise for fellowship. It's not saying that you're not a believer if you don't do the things Paul said. It's saying you're not walking successfully as a believer. But I want to focus on the command and promise in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. I call this the auxiliary rip, rip cord or the emergency uh, rip cord on your parachute. You're in free fall. You're in an emotional free fall. You're in a circumstance that's out of your control and you don't know what to do with it and you need help. I mean, I need it now. This is the command and promise couplet that will address this personally in your personal engagement with God. And it tells you to get on your knees and pray. He says, Meden Merimnata. Meden Merimnata. And I put the red because who knows why I put it in red? Because it's a command. Because he says do it. That's why it's in red. Nothing is the 
way it starts. Nothing as an accusative, the object of the command be worried about. Now that's straight interlinear right there. Nothing be worried about. It doesn't say stop worrying. Negating a present tense doesn't mean that you're already doing it. It means don't do it. It's a general prohibition on a tendency that we all have. If you are worrying based on the general prohibition, then stop it. But he isn't assuming that these successful advancing uh, sacrificial giving Philippians that have him in ministry and have equipped him to send letters all over, he is not assuming that they are worrying. He's saying, don't worry. Don't worry about anything. You're not supposed to worry. He says not to do it. It's a fairly consistent instruction in the scriptures. Do not do it. I am so thankful for this prohibition because, you know, if he hadn't told me that, I might have felt free and clear to just worry all that I wanted. But since he says not to, now I have a responsibility to obey the prohibition and not worry. But I don't really have a choice about it, Pastor, for you see, I do worry. But Paul says, do not worry. So now it's not a matter of I feel, it's a matter of I do what he says or I don't do what he says, or rather, I don't do the thing he said not to do, or I do the thing he said not to do. He prohibits worry. And he does it as a summary about everything. It's a universal prohibition on worry. Well, what if I'm worried about the dog? Nope. What if I'm worried about the the car bill? Nope. What if I'm worried about taxes? What if I'm worried about finances? What if I'm worried about uh, the house leaking? What if I'm worried about where the kids are going to turn out? What if I'm worried about if the DVR worked and I got the game? What if I'm worried about if the stove is on? Or what if I'm worried about, uh, you know, if the rumba runs out of battery? I mean, you could worry about anything and everything. But this covers it all. Don't worry about anything. As I look around the room, I'm trying to think of stuff that I think you worry. No, I'm not. I'm not picking things. Those of you are worried about the rumba battery running out. That's pretty obscure. But I have anxiety. He says, don't do it. He prohibits worry. To get on board with the Lord about this is uh, to calibrate our consciences to God's expectations. How can I do this? Well, the thing about worry is that in the back of your mind and some sort of the bandwidth of your, of your hardware, you are devoting energy to the problem. And I know a lot of times we're worried about something we can't put our finger on it. And I have a drill to help you with that. I have a thought process that I want to walk you through after we do this. But don't worry about anything is what he says. It's a general prohibition. But in ponti, on in ponti, but Allah plus in plus the accusative or plus the dative of pas in everything. He doesn't say in all things. He says in everything. What's the difference between everything and all things? Just the specific nature of the of the singular or the plural. He says in everything, in the case of everything. So notice nothing and everything. This is a double statement of universal. So what's the alternative to to worry is not just to not worry. The alternative to worry and using those resources and some of that hardware in your brain to worry about stuff is to take those resources and apply them to something positive, do something affirmative with them as we just read. And everything, te prosuke kai te deese. This is by prosuke, which is the standard stock word for prayer. Your verb that goes with this prosukamite means to pray. It's our stock word for prayer. Another word for prayer, if we want to take it from two syllables to several, 
talking to God. That's what prayer means. It means to talk to God. Now, the next word is a synonym for prayer, for prosuke, deese, deesis, and it is translated often supplication because this word seems to be the specific talking to God that involves telling him what you want, making specific and often urgent requests. That's what this big English word supplication is. I don't know of another single word for that, for deesis, supplication. Beloved, I didn't know what supplication was for a long time after I had this verse memorized. I had to go look it up in the English dictionary. And then I had to compare that to the, Hebrew, to the Greek lexicon on what it says about deasis. And it seems that the Greek word means an urgent specific request. And so that's what a supplication is in English. Understand what we're saying. You're talking to God. What can you talk to him about? God, you're glorious. You're magnificent. Look at what you've done. What a beautiful sunset. You can talk to God about anything and everything, but the specific talking to God about the thing you're worried about is that you are making your urgent specific request. Stop pretending, if you are, that God in his omniscience doesn't want you to tell him what you want. He wants you to make the request. Urgent specific request. Let's fix this right now. Supplication. Just a matter of expanding things a little bit. By prayer and by urgent, specific request. That's what we're talking about. Why is it urgent? Because you're worried about it. Because it's on your heart. Because it's the thing that's bothering you. Don't sit around and dither and be bothered. Oh, I'm just, it's like a little kid that needs to go to the restroom. Like a little boy that needs to go number one. Why are you dancing around? No reason. Do you need to go to the bathroom? Nope. Just go. Just do the thing that you need to do. You, you're, it's bothering you. You need to tell God about it. And you need to ask him, what do you want? Well, I don't want to say. Ask him. Quit pretending like omniscience means not asking for things that God has you wanting. Make the request. Now, here's the part that we forget because we're hurting. Because we think it's hypocritical for us. It's hypocritical for us to say thank you for the pain that I'm not thankful for. I don't want to say thank you because I don't feel thankful. Well, that's, you're missing the ground wire. This is where you didn't hook up the ground wire. Meta eucharistias, eucharistias, with eucharistia, Thanksgiving. I love this word, not just because of Turkey in November. You is your typical EU, is your typical Greek prefix. We use it in English all the time for something good. Euphonium. Sounds good to some people. If once, I guess you can get it tuned. Um, that's, a, that's a baritone. EU says, good, beautiful. Now this word, C-H-A-R-I-S, charis. That's one of our favorite words in all of the world, not just because it's my sister's name. Charis, charis. It is because it is the word grace. Charis is the Greek word for grace. Whenever you see grace in your English Bible, I think every time it's this word charis, this C-H-A-R-I-S. And then you have some stuff on there to make it a concept. The literal is to good grace. To good grace. And what you're saying when you say thank you is saying thank you. In other words, that's some good grace I got from you. I'm grateful. See the word grace and grateful. It's gratis. That's the Latin coming from, that's where we get the word grace. 
You're saying, I'm grateful or I'm thankful or I got grace from you and it was good. That's what you're saying. That's the idea. It's what you do when someone gives you a gift or an act of grace. You say, thank you. You say, that was grace. That's what thanksgiving means. And now is the problem of doing it. I think this is the problem. Oh, God, help is a good start. That's an urgent, specific request. Oh, God, help with this, whatever the problem is. But notice it's with Eucharistia. You need to thank him. And he doesn't say what to thank him for. So far, we've had nothing to be worried about. We've had everything that we do in all things, whatever we're going through. What do you give him thanks for? Well, what do you have to thank him for? What in the world do I have to thank him for? I don't know, this hurts. No, I didn't say you feel good. I said, what do you have to thank him for? What's true? And start thinking, Philippians, about what you have to thank him for. Well, I mean, eternal life. Jesus loved me, gave himself for me, and the Father calls me his firstborn son, adopted into Christ because of, because of this salvation work. All that stuff I don't feel when I'm hurting, that's all true. You're just counting out billions, right, of your inheritance that you've received already. God gave me the Holy Spirit. You have so much to give thanks to God for. You have so much to be grateful for. And if you have the moment, in that moment of crisis, you can even thank him for how he's going to bring this hardship together for good for me because I love him because I'm called according to his purpose to, com- to, to bring Romans 8, 28 and Philippians 4, 6 together. So be nothing, be worried about nothing, but in everything by prayer and urgent specific request with thanksgiving. Ta itemata humon norizesto. He says, the requests of you, that's the literal, the requests of you make known. Now, why to put uh, norizo, why to put that in red? Because I looked it up, and that is a present passive imperative or a command. He says, make known. The request, your requests, make known. So we were told not to worry. We're told all these qualifications, all these things we're supposed to do. And the command of verse 6 that goes with not worrying is making the request known telling him. Just tell God. Tell him what you want. Tell him your requests. It's urgent specific requests. It's when you're talking to him. It's with thanksgiving you make the request. You need to thank him and then you need to ask him. And don't not thank him and don't not ask him because it's commanded that you do this this way. This is protocol. This is how God wants you to talk to him. Prostanthaon to God. We don't translate the article when we're talking about a personal noun because of the vagaries of the Greek article versus um, the English usage. Nothing be worried about. Be worried about nothing, but in everything by prayer and urgent specific request. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. All right, make them known. Or I should, this is a difficult third-person passive imperative, which will translate, let them be known or let them be made known. It's just a way of saying, tell him. It's a difficult language for my theology for him to tell me to make God know something. God knows everything. He knows all the knowable. He's known it from eternity past, so what can it mean? It doesn't mean conceptually that he comes into new knowledge. 
It means that I become a channel volitionally through my words. He comes to know me saying it because then I have said it. And there's something about the personal, interpersonal relationship between me and God, between you and God, that he wants you to tell him. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever thought about the latent sophomoric tendency not to talk to God about things because you assume he already knows? He does know, and he wants you to deal with him personally. You need to ask, as Jesus taught in uh, Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, ask and seek and knock. And now the promise. I don't break it down in quite as much detail. And the peace of God, hey, Irene Tutheo, the peace of God, the name Irene means peace. The word peace comes, is related to the Greek concept of Irene, of peace, shalom in Hebrew. And the peace of God, and that's more than I'm not at war, right? Shalom, if you bring this concept from Rabbi Paul talking about peace, this is a big deal in, in the context for the New Testament, which is the Old Testament. It's more about wholeness. It's more about soundness than just not being at war. The peace of God. See, you before were all in turmoil and disarray because of anxiety and what God promises. This is not in red. This is not a command. This is a promise. The peace of God, which hooper er echo, who, which supersedes or surpasses all noose, all knowledge or understanding, or fureo, will guard explicit military term, not our stock word for keeping or watching, but will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the promise. There will be a guard set upon our hearts and minds as we give our hearts and minds in that moment to the prayer to God, to the gratitude to God, to him, to interpersonally relate. He will set a guard. The peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. This is a supernatural peace that surpasses all comprehension, all understanding. This is something that we desperately need all the time. But I call this the ripcord, the, the emergency parachute cord, because you're in free fall and you need, in, in that compromised moment, you need stability. Now what this does, it plays into battle drill one. This is how you can redirect and react to the crisis. You grab that promise. Don't worry about anything, but in all things, with your prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request known to God and the peace of God that, guard, that surpasses all comprehension will guard our hearts and minds. You grab that promise and you claim it because you memorized it, because you wrote it down on a note card and then you read it and then you put it down and then you looked at it again and you read it and you put it in your pocket and then you had a minute and you didn't pull your phone out, you pulled your card out and you said, I got a minute. Oh, uh, that's my verse. And you read it again and you memorized it in uh, 15 or 20 minutes. You memorize Philippians 4, 6, and 7 so that then you can claim it. And in claiming that promise, what you're doing is saying, I'm trusting in you, God, to provide what you have promised that you provide. You said, if I asked you, if I asked you with thanksgiving, that you would provide this supernatural peace. So I'm going to rest my faith in stability for that moment. And I'm going to bring other promises too, because this is a big problem and I need other things like Romans 8, 28 and 1 Peter 5, uh, 6 and 7 and other places that God has made his promises. And then I'm going to reflect because I'm stable. See, when the guys are charging the beaches at Normandy, right, they don't need to stop until they get to a place that's cover. 
that I think this was it uh, Jan- June 6th, uh, 1944. They get off the landing craft and they run. And they're running, slogging through the water. Uh, if they haven't been shot by a machine gun or hit by artillery already, they're running and they're trying to get out of the machine gun uh, fire. And, and they're running and they're finding refuge. And in that moment, you're not, um, let's think about this. What's our next steps? You're running and you're reacting and you're trying to get to cover. But once you find cover, once you get behind some dirt, now you can regroup. Now you can think. You take a breath. You can't sit there for all day. We got it. We're going to either die or we're going to get off this beach. So you've got to move, but you have a moment to reflect, to regroup, to think about what your next step is. And I think that the refuge that God provides when you trust in him provides just such that rock, that crevice, that strong position from, 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 from fire, from incoming attack. It provides that moment where you can think, what is this problem that I'm facing? Why is this a problem? Why do I feel like I'm gonna die if this happens? Why do I think that this is the end of my life or, or life won't be worth living if this takes place? Why is this such a big deal? Why is my, my, all my life focused on this one thing? Why? When, Pastor Dave, you could tell me all the things. Jesus died for my sins and he loves me. He's got an eternal plan for my life. He's got a, a, a wonderful billet of rulership in the coming kingdom. You have all the wonderful things that God has said, but right now it's just this problem. What is this bothering me? And you have to unpack it. You have to think. And you don't want to think, but right now you're in the refuge, and so you can think. So what am I afraid to lose? Why am I upset? And once I have thought that through, and that may be something you need to do a lot. This is a thought process you can take to in your prayers. Father, why am I concerned? I'm trusting you. I'm seeking refuge in you. You've said, one of my requests, I urge a specific request, help me see, think through what's the problem here. Why is this a, a, a trouble? Hey, and, and you who want to help somebody that's in trouble, you can Walk someone through this and say, hey, let's talk about why this is the problem. What's it bothering you? What's, what's the thing that you're worried about? What do you seek to lose or stand to lose if this takes place? What is the ultimate cost that you're afraid you'll be without? What are you afraid of? Why is the problem before you such a problem? And it, it seems in some of the problems that we face, the big ones, it's obvious. Well, it's obvious why this is a problem. But yeah, beyond the obvious thing that you're worried about, what else? What, why is that bad? Think, reflect. And it's not an overthink. It's really getting to the root of what your anxiety is and why you're worried about it. And this will really help you. When you're behind that piece of dirt, what you have to do is start to maneuver. You have to get up. You have to provide a base of fire and then somebody has to envelop. Someone has to go and attack the enemy from the side or you're just never gonna, you're never gonna win. You have to get up and move and think. And so, so this is where you reflect and, and come up with your, with your reaction, with, with the, what is the real problem? What is the nature? Okay, well, what we're facing here is two machine guns and two mortars in a, in a pillbox. And what we have to do is go fight that. That's, that's the nature of the problem. So that's the reflect piece. And the way you develop that enemy, the way you take it out is that you put it in its perspective. What was an impossible um, fortified position you could never fight will take its proper place as a small little little piece on the big picture of God's plan for your life because you relate his eternal purpose for you who he is and all his essence what he said about you and what he's done for you already remember the the things the the riches of divine grace that God did when you first trusted in Christ you could take all the truths of God's word of God's attributes all the things that you know from him doctrinally and you can relate them to this problem that you've fully reflected on and you've thought through what the problem is and you can bring those things of God's wonderful truth to bear on that problem. And that's, 
a strong way to deal. And, and you know, you might start feeling better in the moment sometimes when you do this. And you may not. And I didn't say that the problem goes away and I didn't say the pain goes away. I said the size of the problem puts it, is in its proper proportion. It's real. It's the same size problem, but my perspective is bigger. It's not right to tell Christians that they shouldn't hurt. It's right to tell Christians that while you hurt, you need God to strengthen you to be able to bear this. And this is how you do it. You relate God's truth to the problem having reflected on it, and then you can rejoice. And you should rejoice just like we should give thanks when we're making our specific requests. Because if I'm suffering for divine discipline, I can rejoice that I can think this through and I remember that it's not about me and the problem that I'm facing. It's about me and God and to make my adjustment and let God adjust that discipline to be suffering for my blessing or my growth. If I'm not suffering for divine discipline, if I'm suffering for growth, I'm suffering because God wants to test my faith and he wants to strengthen me and that's the only way I can really grow, then I can rejoice in that because now I know my suffering has an eternal purpose and God's bringing proven character out of the suffering. So I can rejoice in the suffering once I've thought it through. I can rejoice in my eternal destiny. I can rejoice in how this suffering is affecting my eternal destiny. I can rejoice knowing that as I'm trusting the Lord Jesus Christ through this problem, he's gonna say, well done on this issue at the judgment seat of Christ. I can rejoice in these things because they're true. And none of these things that we're talking about are part of the circumstance. The circumstance hasn't changed. And you don't get these things from your feelings. You don't get these from the, from the problem. You don't look at the problem, call them up again and get the problem. That's not where you get this. You get this from God's word. You get this from, from the time we're spending now. And you bring these, these, this truth of God's word to bear on the situation and you really do use, you use that wonderful gray matter between your ears. Not to think independently of God, but to reason with God's word. This is, you, this is the big boy and big girl stuff of Christian growth. You have to think. I don't want to think. I want to be devastated. Well, be devastated, but think too. And that's hard. It's hard to do. I know it's hard to do, but you get better at it. God's command to rejoice becomes an obvious consequence. Now, where does God command you to rejoice? Do you know where? Philippians 4.4. 4. And what do you rejoice? Not in the pain. You rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Father, thank you for the skills that you're building us to handle the hardships that you're, you've, you've incorporated into the plan. Father, when we need divine discipline, we don't want to despise it. We want to embrace it because you're a loving heavenly father. It's proof that we have a father in heaven when we receive divine discipline. Father, let us avoid that discipline because we avoid the decisions that bring it. And as we have need for you to discipline us, help us make the switch quickly in confession of our sins and seeking to walk with you so that we're not constantly being ushered back to the path. Father, those of us under divine discipline, Father, help us figure it out, help us see it, help us make that adjustment. Father, as you bring suffering to our lives for growth, that as we trust you through the circumstance that brings about proven character, I pray that you would remind us of this and it would refresh us. We would renew our strength to face the, the mountains you're asking us to climb. We know that in your spirit we can do all things that please you. Nothing that you want for us is out of our reach because the Holy Spirit is omnipotent. And even something so impossible, seemingly impossible as thinking through hardship and crisis is not impossible for you. Help us remember these things. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.